0: All right. Um, I am here with uh, my co-host, uh, Stan Cox. Stan is a um, researcher at the Land Institute, and I have appointed him as of today as my co-host and special correspondent for the ecosphere. So, Stan, welcome. Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Um, and then me and Stan are going to interview Max Isle, who is a postdoc uh, at Wageningen University and the author of the book we're going to talk about today, which is A People's Green New Deal. And I especially wanted to um, invite Stan because if you've listened to our previous episode on Stan's book, which is Beyond the Green New, the Green New Deal and Beyond. So we've got we've got I'm, I'm putting I've got two different Green New Deals um that i think are quite compatible actually um and this is a this is like a tightly woven um um podcast because max has written a review of stan's book um stan is going to interview max about his book and i have interviewed stan about his book and written a review of stan's book and now we're going to talk to max about max's book so max welcome
1: thank you so much for having me it should be added that uh I extensively cited Stan's book in my book. Yeah. If, you want to, if, you, if you want to complete, if you want to complete the circle,
0: yeah, I think that we have yeah. to complete the circle. So, yeah. Max, your book, um, we you know we can we but we can just just to introduce your book on its own terms. I think of your book as um, basically uh, an antidote to the Eurocentrism of the climate change debate. So you are taking um, the whole discussion of climate change, climate justice, climate transitions, and looking at it, um, you know, from the perspective, or at least with information from the rest of the world so that it's not just about, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, and, and what the U.S. does. Um, to the world, <laughs> um, and 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 to think about the gr- even a concept like a green new deal, but in a in a in a in a glo- like truly global way, um, is that fair? Tell me what you tell me how that compares to your own conception of your own book.
1: Absolutely, it's about trying to think about what is an appropriate way to plan a sustainable social system. And thinking about where we are now, which is a imperialist, capitalist, heavily polluting social system in the Eurosphere and the destruction and environmental degradation of the rest of the world and saying, how can we get from where we are to over there?
0: Yeah. And early on, you talk about this Bolivian manifesto, which seems to be very important in your book. Can you talk a tiny bit about that? The, the Bolivian
1: Manifesto is so important and has been seriously neglected, uh, if not actively suppressed by certain nefarious actors in the Euro-American Green New Deal discussion. So the, this emerged as a response to the Copenhagen Accords, which were successfully roadblocked by the radical Latin American uh, people's governments, uh, along with Sudan. Of course, we know what happened to Sudan and has been going on to the Latin American people's governments because imperialism doesn't take being roadblocked very kindly. Uh, it does its best to remove the roadblocks in whatever way it sees fit. Uh, so these, these people's agreements basically laid out a roadmap for a planned socialist transition in the world economic system and the world um, way of managing its interaction with the environment focused above all on things like demilitarization, just terms for uh, technology transfer, massive, massive amounts of climate reparations as part of colonial reparations, food sovereignty, rights to live in peace, rights to live without war, rights to have just food systems, right to have control over the environment, Uh, demands for decolonization, uh, both of territory and of atmospheric space. In other words, it was a Southern call for uh, eco-socialist revolution in many ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the first part of your book uh, is called Capitalist Green Transitions. The second is A People's Green New Deal. So the first book, the first part of the book is like what you're against, I would say, Um, at least the first two chapters. So, uh, you know, for me... I, I always think of environmentalism and the environmental movement, like the biggest danger, the biggest problem that we have is always co-optation. And so you kind of go through all these different types of co-optation that have gone on, um, with regards to the environmental, you know, movement or environmental discourse. Um, and, uh, you know, the first one is, is kind of the idea that, okay, there's an environmental crisis. So we need to militarize Uh, the West needs to further militarize, seize more resources and stop um, all, uh, you know, immigration, uh, you know, exert further brutal control over key resources and so on. So you call that fortress eco nationalism. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely, so if we look at our existing world system, it's based essentially on uneven access to development, uneven access to world resources, and it's already maintained by extremely militarized borders and uh, lack of mobility of people between nations as well as the systematic destruction of nations. And of course, those policies go hand in hand. If you are systematically destroying nations and making them uninhabitable, you have to modulate population flows between nations. Otherwise, people will, in one way or another, be making claims upon the resources that are concentrated through military force in the wealthier countries and putting and also making demands on their social security and so forth. So you would have you you would end up destroying the the entire logic of uneven and polarized accumulation if people can just go where everything is being accumulated. So you have to control the movement of people if you want a system of uneven accumulation. Now this is in essence going to worsen under ongoing and worsening patterns of global climate change. And this is well within the projections that are currently being put forward by the IPCC and all the other organizations, as well as the scientists who talk about what's actually going on as opposed to the more conservative predictions that come out of the heavily massaged uh, IPCC (laughs) process, right? And what they're basically stating is that there's going to be a widespread destruction uh, that is going to flood over large portions of the global south. And this is very clear if we look at what's already going on, so there's already, you know, large uh, and systematic uh, aggregations of natural climate disasters that are already hammering into large portions of the global south. Everyone remembers the cyclone that hit into Mozambique. Uh, what ha- happened to the Southeast Asia? The heat waves that have already started to hammer into especially southern India and other portions of South Asia. The uh, w- what's been happening to Bangladesh in terms of floods, what's been happening to Zimbabwe, the hurricanes that have s- slammed into the Caribbean again and again and again to the point where reconstruction is not even possible because of the ferocity of the hurricanes. I mean, we know what happened to Haiti, we know what happened to Puerto Rico. So these kinds of Pattern destructions that are a direct consequence of a decision on the part of the ruling class to not do anything about global warming since they knew exactly that global warming was happening and what its consequences would be since at least the 1980s. Fifteen uh, years
0: have been lost, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so these are known, and so of course the, the ruling class is now uh, summoning up these... Responses that operate along capitalist and nationalist and also fascist and colonial lines in order to deal with the issue that they are making large portions of the world either less habitable and possibly in the long run uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to even further militarize the borders. And this is, of course, an object of understandable uh consternation and of course uh political activism in term in the european core in the united states and canada there are all these kinds of no borders campaigns but the other side of that coin is that what the problem is not merely the border it's also the process of uh, or the kind of uh constellation of causes that produce displacement in the first place right which means both in environmental destruction and also the grabbing of resources which includes not only atmospheric space but also land for biofuels or land for biodiversity preservation under militarized conditions and so forth that will end up further aggravating popular uh, population displacement and so it's very uh modish to focus on these issues of borders and it's a lot less modish to focus on issues of imperialism and what that basically amounts to is actually putting a band-aid on the wound rather than addressing why the wound is occurring in the first place
0: yeah yeah that's a, that's a great summary and i mean you you talk a bit about Malthus. you know the you have a section called the return of malthus and that's you know so many of the uh so many of the funded environmental organizations have a very Malthusian and you know, ultimately imperialist take on on, on these issues, which is pretty scary. Of course um, they do. Of course yeah, they do.
1: Uh, and Malthus has always been a kind of social scientific, uh, uh, social science fiction resort of yeah. the imperialists and the capitalists when they don't want to discuss socialism. Exactly.
0: So, Stan, we uh, we're we're approaching chapter two, and you know, uh, (laughs) I remember, you know, I guess it was two years ago now when when you were working on um, the Green New Deal and beyond, and and we talked a lot about the eco modernists. Um, So, why don't I uh, give the floor to you and Max to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that you guys have both neglected the miracle, you know, the miracle cure of fully automated luxury communism, which I think, you know, we really need to, um, <laughs> sorry, I can't, yeah. I can't keep a straight pace. But yeah, yeah talk, it why don't you guys talk about uh, fully automated luxury communism and how it's going to save us all?
2: Or or uh, eco-modernism more broadly, It's it um, seems, Max, that in addition to now, your book, in, in addition to being a corrective to the, uh, the Global North bias of various um, Green New Deal type proposals, it's also a corrective to the, the um, urban and uh, technological uh, bias of, of them. And, um, and, that, and that's where your um, critique of uh, eco-modernism comes in and, and it's especially what's especially troubling is um and and, and I, I was surprised when it started happening what you um called it, that this being a a way of uh, introducing reactionary thought in into the left because this this whole idea has become um uh, uh has been taken up by you know all sorts of people uh on the left and and i wonder um do you the people um proposing all this stuff do they do you think they really believe that that humanity can live for, you know physically independent of of the non human world that we in in especially in uh, how we, we will um, eat? Can did, do they really believe that with you know, lab cultured meat and I guess uh, Jetsons pills or or something that we're uh, that that we can really um, wall off nature and what what you're uh, calling it? Um, it's like an apartheid concept and and live in in a technological bubble. Do, do they really? It, is this a scam of some kind? What, what's
1: going on? Well, it's tricky. And uh, we do get a bit into individual motivations and individual uh, mentalities, which can be uh, a fraud subject, right? Uh, when we, when we want to understand the phenomenon a bit more sociologically is in what allows these ideas to flourish and what allows them to wither. And so, but I, I think it is, I think there is a use in clarifying which uh, technologies people really believe in, uh, because there are certain things that people do really believe in. I think people do really believe in this idea of vertical agriculture, right? That people, I, I'm quite sure that people really do think, sure, we can just put the farms on top of one another using concrete and steel <laughs> and glass and directed mirrors. Oh, and if we God. put them on, if we put them on top of one another, then we will liberate the land for nature. I think people are so alienated from uh, agrarian production and, uh, sustainable land management and so forth and how agroecosystems work, that there are certainly a lot of people in the North who think you can actually do that. Uh, There also have been sold the idea that it is possible to do that, right? So it's not, of course they believe it and maybe some of the promoters in fact believe it, but it's also a question of understanding how these ideas circulate. And so the the lab meat uh, salespeople including those who have uh, managed to situate themselves on what passes for the North American left, I think they're quite honestly true believers in the use of Lemmy because they're not used to thinking about where things come from. So it's an exercise of thoughtlessness, right? It is the entire world system is structured so that they don't think about where inputs actually come from. And they don't think about what other human beings subsist bas- using pastoral production or integrated uh, animals integrated into their smallholder farms and so f- So what allows them not to see it uh, when they should see it is a question that people have reflected upon very much uh, during, uh, in their reflections, for example, on uh, the Holocaust, right? People were like, how did this happen? How did people look away? How did people manage not to know? Um, and, and there's a conscious process of, uh, of looking away um, and not really coming to terms with the barbarity of what is in fact being put forward. Uh, So I I think it's, uh, to some extent, it's important to understand how that happens and how it really reflects a certain parochial interest, right? It reflects a parochial interest uh, that is also a class position that's saying the impacts of these policies on the South are just not our, are ultimately not our concern. We're not really allowing them to enter our consciousness. And so it's not a coincidence, for example, that one of the major promoters of lab meat on what passes for the progressive left has been promoting Israeli lab meat venture venture capital, right? Uh, You know, because who cares about the boycott? Who cares about Palestinians? Uh, Again, uh, it's a lack of concern, right? right? And it is saying, okay, this is how racism works. I mean, there's people who matter, and there's people who don't matter. now. Um you know whether, uh, whether Sir Aaron Bastani himself is a dupe uh, or a, a, a duper, a duper uh, uh, or, or what have you, uh, I'm not really sure. I mean he, he kind of seems like uh, have, has this kind of high evangelical uh, true believer energy about him. Uh, so I, I can't be very clear about that. Uh, I think what, what's interesting to me, uh, from a from a political economy perspective, is who allows this to go out into the world, and why isn't there a widespread protest against it? I mean, for example, I had not read uh, full uh, highfalutin uh, schizophrenic uh, uh, hallucinogenic uh, luxury uh, northern. Uh, American communism. Until I was preparing my book itself, and I was rather shocked. Not about the asteroid mining, um, because that was kind of a, a, a well-known lunacy. What I was shocked is that there was a defense of the Green Revolution in the book. Yeah, which so which
0: you have to be, yeah.
1: which which struck me because I thought the Green Revolution was something that. One of those things about agriculture that even people who don't know about agriculture and even people who don't care that much about the third world are like, we know that the green revolution was pretty bad. We don't know all the details. We might even agree with industrializing agriculture but we do know this thing called the green revolution was not really a good thing, right? Even if it's uh, a poorly informed understanding. Now I was rather shocked and I'm also shocked Why, why are people accepting that this, that senior editors of Verso Books, right? Why would someone treat them as decent human beings when they allow defenses of the fascist green revolution to appear in their printing press? Why would you not protest those people when they try to present themselves in left-wing spaces? Why would you treat them as your comrades when they're saying, well, yeah, a couple hundred thousand indian people are ingesting pesticides uh as uh, in an act of suicide as a consequence of the greed revolution and there's widespread uh, health uh, destruction and there's been widespread flight to cities massive poverty uh it's a legitimate position on the left and we want to promote that i mean and this is how evil happens right like this it, this very it, it, this relates to how evil happens people are saying okay well you know this happens Leftist publishers publish things like that from time to time. you know this is just uh, this is part of our uh, this is part of the left and oh. this is what I this is what this is what I find actually the most shocking of all.
0: Well, it's interesting too because I mean I, I wonder you guys both um, have talked a little bit about the you know the nuclear because because the the fully automated luxury communism basically comes down to nuclear. Power, right? Like we're just gonna have right. a- abundant, super abundant energy, and that'll just everything. Everything becomes super easy once you have that. So, um, you know, I don't know. Like, how does how does that how does how does that aspect of it sit with you guys?
1: You want to go go for that, Stan?
2: <clears throat> well. It, it it just it just shows that they it, it's more uh, magical thinking on on their part that to to make it um, work they have to talk about mining asteroids and so forth. There, well, <clears throat> last year there was a paper published by um, a group of uh, nuclear scientists, and they were all people who you know spent their careers trying to make nuclear power work. And, and they, um, they, they kind of threw up their hands in this article and said, we've come to the conclusion that this is a, a dying industry and it cannot be revived and certainly can't be um, in, um, relied upon to produce nominally carbon-free energy in any time in the next uh, 50 years, because there's no more conventional nuclear that's going to be built. And um, the the speculative um, uh, backyard nukes and so forth, and and all this uh, um, new versions of nuclear power, they said, even if they can be developed, by the time they are developed, and certainly by the time they can be Deployed on a big scale, there's going to be um, we're we're already going to be cooking. That they they are not they won't be a a climate solution um, certainly. Um, So it's an uh, it it is another um, magical thinking um, situation, right? Um, Regarding vertical farming, which I've spent ten years now uh, fighting this other um, version of nuclear of uh, magical thinking um, we, we were talking about it here one day and one of my colleagues said well yeah that we're talking about the uh, impossible energetics of the thing and he was saying well yeah they could you know you can have these um, tall buildings where you're stacking um, you know plots of crops, one on top of the other. But you, next door, you can have a stack of nuclear reactors, one on top of the other. They'll probably have to be about the same height to run the thing.
0: <laughs> um,
1: it's it's bonkers, right? And you know what the other part, and uh, you know, Stan, uh, you know, you're practicing uh, research scientist in agronomy. So I know you know more about this than I do. But what strikes me is so uh, bizarre about this is that so many more people know about uh, high-tech vertical farming than low-tech vertical farming. Like people, okay. people don't understand, including I think probably a lot of people who actually do do some level of agriculture, right? Probably don't conceptualize that there is actually a lot of potential uh, for elaborating on our knowledge about. The fact that farming can occur in three dimensions right through multiple stories and that this is actually something that there isn't nearly enough uh, uh, North American or g- worldwide uh, sustainable agronomic research that goes into, but it's quite fascinating because it actually allows for the uh, a multiple use of land in many ways uh, and People are are not discussing that at all, but are discussing these fantasy worlds of uh, vertical farming that turn the energetic farming on its head. And it really goes to show you about the kind of, the way political economy determines the orientation of our entire research uh, infrastructure,
2: right? Well, in fact, I had a a note here, I wanted you to elaborate on some of this um, uh, 3D, Farming, which I, I've used uh, that uh, term also as a, as a alternative to vertical farming. Um, but could you say, elaborate some on where you mentioned and, and briefly described in the book, uh, there are um, things like the, the arbors of Sumatra and the Kayapo uh, polycropped forest gardens and, and other examples of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I've spent a lot of time in Tunisia and also have made uh, many trips to the Tunisian south to the oases of Gebes, where I actually frequently get sick because they're being uh, murdered by this kind of phosphate holocaust uh, that's been imposed upon them uh, through this uh, heavy industrial export or Primary uh, commodity export developmental model where everybody has cancer, but the the system there is brilliant, right? You have uh, you know you have the tallest trees, you have uh, date palms, and below that you have pomegranates, and you have trestles, uh, sometimes uh, grapes or other things, and you have peppers, and you have uh, squash, you have uh, melons growing at the bottom. So you're actually using all the dimensions of. Uh, the three dimensions and the sun is cutting in at uh, its distinct angles and different things The you can cultivate and you can uh, harvest year round. And it's an extraordinarily productive on a per hectare basis, right? And I think uh, this is particularly uh, novel, probably for people living in the northern reaches of North America, although polycropping is uh, to some extent feasible of course, as you know in uh, the northern certain portions of uh, North America as well, but because uh, we're not used to understanding that farming can occur year round. This is part of it, I think. Um, and you know I, I know far less about it, but I also know that there are ways to do to stack animals that eat different levels of vegetation uh, to increase, the productivity and more efficiently use the biomass of uh, certain types of, uh, of of animal farms. So I think there's there's so much there that uh, needs to be explored uh, that can be uh, that can be explored in terms of increasing the amount people are getting from uh, from farms. And so I think it's uh, it's a super interesting line of research that uh, in fact no one is even discussing, right? So this is why, again, it's uh, something I've been inspired by the work you you are doing at the Land Institute is that one of the major uh, blockades towards, from my perspective, uh, towards a kind of new way of conceptualizing uh, modern, interdependent, uh, sophisticated, Uh, forms of ecological planning that have agriculture much closer to their center is that there's so little research being done about developing sustainable agriculture and sustainable in the broad sense of agroecology or uh, perennial cereals. And there's so little research money going into it. I think it's far under 1%, for example, of EU research budget goes into that uh, agricultural research budget.
0: Why would you do that when you can, when you can develop algorithms to get people to click on ads? You know, why would you, why would you want to spend money on sustainable agriculture? But um, so the fully automated luxury communism, whatever, all of these different eco-modernists are based on an idea of growth. And when I think about growth, I kind of think of it as almost like a counterinsurgency program against um against the communism, against redistribution, right? Like ever since the, the communists showed up on the scene a hundred plus years ago, the, the U S answer to that was always like, no, 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 don't, don't uh, redistribute the pie. We're going to grow and make more pies. And, and if you try to redistribute, you're going to get in the way of growth. And so you, you got, again, like both of you, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll, take you know we'll have max uh address this first but like you um it's it's interesting because uh you know the idea that degrowth or you know being less um you know less of an emphasis on growth economic growth being a you know a progressive or a, a leftist or an anti-imperialist position um you know, it doesn't always it doesn't always fit, right? Because we leftists are always about giving a better life to people, um, you know, like all, ending deprivation for the masses of people. So, you know, how do you how do you think about that, like that trade off between the need for development in the global south and the importance of degrowth um, overall for the sake of you know planetary stability? Max, go.
1: Yeah, well, so although I'm not a degrowther, to be very fair, the degrowthers tend to emphasize that degrowth is meant to apply to northern societies uh, and that it's not really meant to apply to uh, southern or peripheral societies. So it's, I think that's an important distinction to make. Um yeah, there yeah, are, and Stan says there, that
0: in his book, Stan says you know some places will be will need to consume more energy per capita than they do now so
1: right right um you know the the problem the growth is uh, an ideology uh, um, as well as a material practice and so I think throwing the wrench in the ideology that we need to that, that we need permanent growth in order to uh, sustain the health of not only capitalism, but to provide enough for everybody, I think this is a very useful thing. And I think the technical interventions that come from the more uh, planning-oriented degrowthers are often very important. And of course, I would highlight the work of Uneven Earth around this, where there's very, very uh, important interventions on the technical level, including on a lot of stuff overlapping with Stan's work around air conditioning and sustainable agriculture and and so forth. Now, um, you know... For me, uh, so those are the aspects I appreciate. But what I think is so important is that there are some things that need to grow and some things that need to shrink. We need to shrink the US military. We need to grow northern renewable energy. We need to shrink the use of cars and we need to increase the use of mass transit and uh, monorails and airships and trolleys. Uh, we need to shrink the bureaucracy clustered around the healthcare system and we need to increase the amount of preventative medicine and we need to decrease the amount of fossil fuel use and we need to increase the number of windmills. Uh, so there's so many things for everything that needs to decrease, degrow, there's other things you need to grow. Whereas for the South, they probably th- there's needed a certain path of uh, qualitative development. Uh, as distinct from uh, quantitative growth in GDP, which is aggregating a whole cluster of things, some of which are socially entropic and harmful, and some of which are socially beneficial, right? Uh, but what, what I think is so important also, the, the contribution really of the degrowth is to remind us at least that already the existing forces of production on the face of the planet, if uh, kind of converted and distributed equally, would provide everybody with a good life, more or less. Uh, Now, of course, you can't quite do that, right? You can't quite take Northern energy use and plop it into the South. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, At the same time, it does remind us that uh, GDP is not really having a lot to do with uh, people's well-being. The idea of growth of GDP to provide everybody with uh, adequate well-being, doesn't really explain the nature of the social challenge in front of us, uh, because in fact, as a socialist, I don't want many things to be quantified as GDP in the first place. I want healthcare right, to be, f- right. I want healthcare to be free. Uh, yeah. I want, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I want education to be free. Uh, I think housing could mostly be, uh, collectively owned, whether by unions or by municipalities, and people could have access to it. So I don't want those things included in uh, GDP anyway. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, whatever you measure, <laughs> you're going to try to maximize somehow, right? It turns it into a game when you're measuring. Um, so, okay, you guys both um, named your books after uh a historical program that was very problematic as well, uh, AKA the new deal. So you have green new deal. And then there's also like, you guys are both American where the phrase new deal has probably more resonance. I mean, everybody in the world knows what the new deal was and so on, but, but I think um, the debates, maybe I should let you guys, you know, just have an American conversation about, about the, Proposed New Deal, which I gather is mostly dead in the water, right? Like AOC's New Deal uh, probably isn't actually going to go anywhere. But like, what is the what is the American conversation about the actually existing Green New Deal or what you call Green Social Democracy, Max? Um, what's going on with that? Uh, let,
1: let's go first on this one.
2: <laughs> well. <clears throat> The the New Deal uh, part of the Green New Deal, and and by the way, the original Green New Deal terminology uh, came out of the uh, UK um, in around 2008 when uh, the world economy was collapsing, and so they were thinking, well, building renewable energy could be an economic stimulus and uh, and so it wasn't, the, the green part was um, sort of uh, dressing, um, you know, window dressing and it, what it was aimed at was the new deal part. And then and, and that has kind of continued the, uh, the green new deal as it um, was described in the joint congressional resolution in 2019. And since then has, been, um, um, you know, f- there are a lot of good things in the New Deal uh, part of it, um, it uh, for, you know, social safety nets and um, uh, job guarantees and, and so forth. It doesn't go far enough. I, I agree with you, Max, that we need um, what, what are being called universal basic services and so, and, and not necessarily universal. Basic income, but to uh, guarantee what um, that that people uh, have access to um, health care, transportation, etc. Um, but then, of course, the the green part of it um, is what was um, it was completely um, amorphous and with with no plan at all to. Um, Eliminate the uh, burning of fossil fuels or to even to reduce emissions, just um, like in agriculture, they said reduce emissions to the extent technologically possible. Um, and, and the uh, now, uh, what Biden is talking about um, is is kind of a um, watered down version. Even of the, the Green New Deal, um, and, and in fact, I was going to ask you about this because um, he's falling back on the uh, the uh, net zero pledge that uh, you know, that all the countries and corporations are making now, uh, which um, I, I refer to it as a not zero pledge because it's it's a lot of it's kind of a shell <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, a shell game that is is not not only won't it will um it is aimed at the um being able to continue um, burning fossil fuels, but um but it also is um it's going to uh, increase the the plunder of the uh, global south and. And you know, rely on, uh, to a great extent, on um, uh, on the South to um, help um, create this impression that the emissions in in the North are being canceled out. Um, do you have any um, observations on that, Max?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it strikes me that uh, net zero is a nightmare if it's true, and it's a nightmare if it's false. Right. This, right. Is, this is this has been my perspective um, because I, it seems to me, reading the literature, that for example, the the climate finance leadership initiative and and other of these kind of high food sectors, some of them are more or less willing to accept that the, at some point. The fossil fuel industry will have to go. This is at least my impression, um, and, and they're willing to consider. Uh, you know, and and probably ideally they would uh, like to channel as much uh, of the tax uh, of tax revenue into the expropriation or nationalization or eventual suppression of the fossil fuel industries. So they are they are willing to consider eventually getting to. Uh, net zero, and even a kind of zero eventually, right? So there is some awareness of the nature of the problem, right? Uh, Although I also think that they would like to uh, continue burning uh, as long as possible and also do uh, carbon capture emissions uh, or uh, geoengineering and uh, scattering particles in the sky. And and if those work also to allow the burning of fossil fuels to the great profit of ExxonMobil, Total, and so forth. I think people, the, the Northern uh, conglomerates are very much in, in favor of that and avoiding the kind of systemic social restructuring that actually dealing with the fossil fuel issue would, would entail. On the, on the other hand, of course, I do think that there are other sectors of the ruling class that are very much interested in blanketing the South in these monocrop plantations. And it's, they're already experimenting with it. I mean, there was a massive experiment w- with it in Ethiopia. Of course, it uh, failed utterly. Uh, there have been experiments with it, I think, in Morocco. They also totally failed. I mean, because it doesn't—you uh, can't just plant trees wherever you want. I mean, there is a lot of biomes that are not used to having uh, trees, let alone having all trees that are of the same age and of the same species. Which means that they're also—they're all drawing from the water table uh, in the same way and causing a massive damage to the water table um, that are also not having any, uh, any biodiversity. So they're very vulnerable, drawing on similar types of, of nutrients. Uh, and it seems to me that these experiments are in, although although these experiments are based on a faulty knowledge of forest ecology, Uh, both North and South that these experiments people are very enthusiastic about. They're also enthusiastic about putting uh, value on the existing uh, carbon drawdown activities that are occurring already in the South through the conservation of forests. And then once you've turned that into a revenue stream, you can put a bond on it and then you can sell the bond and you've kind of created a new frontier of accumulation Uh, And then there's also, uh, you know, there's also this kind of excess enthusiasm around something like biochar, right, where there's also people making small bets about that, the kind of conversion of forests into a mix of biogas and uh, uh, these charred blocks that also uh, draw down carbon from the atmosphere and so forth, and also work on biofuels. So I think, and but the point is that all of this is basically calling for a recolonization, reprimitive accumulation of all the natural and semi-natural and agricultural areas of the global south, which very much relates to this question of uh, a fortress nationalism, right? Because what's being mooted or what's being considered is not only net zero as a lie, but also net zero as a truth that requires the absolute catastrophic destruction of the lives and livelihoods of forty uh, percent of the planet.
0: Yeah, I mean, there there's never uh, imperialists have never um, missed an an opportunity to blanket the global south with monocrop plantations, right? I mean, that's it's kind of like uh, the the whole the whole thing. Their their whole thing. Um, going back to the 19th century, but uh, so here's another, here's another idea that, um, that I guess, uh, you have a a really strong anti-imperialist critique of because um, the, the idea of just, cause you've got your vision, uh, you know, that you, you lay out in the second part of the book, you call it a planet of fields. Um, you know, and and I've heard, you know, so-called deep ecologists, uh, that kind of, um, that kind of northern environmentalist <laughs> argues that we should leave most of the planet alone, right? So there's this kind of idea like leave nature um, alone, you know, co- co- kind of conservation areas that only maybe tourists and from the global North and maybe some researchers from the global North can, could ever go and have access to. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in a way this, this is, you know, I, I think there's something to this. I think there are some wild species that, you know, really don't want to be around humans and need some space, you know, big, big charismatic megafauna, whatever. Uh, but there's also a kind of an imperialism to this too, right? I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole militarized imperialist kind of conservation, uh, which is what it's been in a lot of ways from the beginning. So you have a, you have a, a great critique of that. Can you, can you talk about that, like where, where the wild fits into the future that that we would envision, and also, um, you know, where imperialism fits into the current debates about rewilding or conservation whatever
1: yeah so again uh, I, I, and I find myself having to offer a lot of praise for the Land Institute in this con- in this conversation uh, because uh, the work that's been going on there has always been uh, through um, through Stan and, and Wes Jackson and others has always been really important to my understanding of uh, how you can remold agriculture to make it uh, kind of a uh, synergistic and beneficial uh way of having the human metabolism with the non-human world uh and uh, so th- that's been one of my launching points and as i've uh, learned more growing up which which happens unless you are um, a vertical farm enthusiast in which case you learn less as you grow up um okay. You know, I, I've understood that, of course. One, this is the the indigenous uh, landscape of what came to be the United States was very much blanketed in these kind of sustainable agro ecosystems where biodiversity and agriculture worked hand in hand. Right, that these were not opposed processes, but that they were synergistic. Yeah. Um, exactly. And yeah. uh, the other uh, really foundational. A uh, piece of literature, and uh, you know, I, I lift it up because I would hope anyone listening to this will go look into it. Is the work of uh, Yvette Perfecto and John Vandermeer uh, uh, around nature's matrix, which kind of imagines a repatterning of, especially tropical agriculture, but presumably uh, a variant of the model can work around other agric- around other agricultures where you have, uh, of course, non input using. Uh, farms that also are hospitable that are kind of interpatterned in a kind of tartan with uh, patches of uh, untrammeled biodiversity, forests, and so forth. But the, the agricultural patches have enough of a resemblance to the untrammeled or non agricultural land that animals can pass through easily and kind of don't consider it a hostile habitat because it's not being doused in chemicals and so forth. And so this also allows for a kind of human living with nature rather than having to create this apartheid separation of humans from nature. And uh, their modeling, of course, showed that this has been very beneficial for biodiversity. This is very beneficial for the food security of uh, 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 of the populations living on the land. And in fact, if, if, uh, and I'm sure Stan has something very important to add about this. I know very little actually about the biodiversity conservation aspects of it as it relates to, uh, cereal cultivation on the perennials in the prairies in the North. So, um, I just want to, I want to get to the rest of the, the question, because I've kind of been, uh, going on for a while, but please, Stan, please address that because I'm ready to learn, uh, about that, not about, again, I'm not interested in learning about land, but I am interested in learning about that. Um, and I bet the listeners would be too. Um, so I think this, this, is in, this is in sharp contrast to these kind of apartheid colonial ideas of, you have humans over here and you have nature over there. Uh, so you have humans in the cities, which in fact is very much embraced also by uh, the North American left, right? I mean, my idea of a planet of fields was developed in juxtaposition to uh, Mike Davis's Planet of Slums, against and then his idea of the City of Ark. And I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. Uh, why would <laughs> Good for you know? You. <laughs> I was like, you know. I was like, this just doesn't make sense. Like, you just have to, like, know that cities are not arcs and, like, the rest of the world is not a flood. You know,
0: the re- <laughs> That's the fear of nature, too, right? Like, it's this kind of loathing of, of you know, <laughs> the idea that, yeah, there's uh, outside of this arc is, like, completely un unsurvivable where you know yeah it's like uh, what is
1: it? it's like Blade Runner 2049 right it's this it's it's it's, it's this uh it's this crazy uh post-lapsarian apocalyptic uh, hellhole that they imagine and they're like no we'll just make it red and this is very you know we'll make a we'll make a communist version of your post-lapsarian hellhole and then you know humans will be in the arcs in the cities <laughs> and whether the outside will be apocalypse or uh, like Mad Max or whether we will reserve it as a kind of Jurassic Park or whatever in any, in, 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 in any <laughs> case we're, yeah we're cares? not gonna be we're just who gonna cares? be passing
0: through at high speed in some high speed vehicle anyway <laughs> yeah
1: or maybe we're gonna have uh, people harvesting crops by machines out there Wh- whatever whatever the case may be we're not gonna be involved in that and just uh I feel like you have to be very educated, but in a certain um, uh, in a certain very pernicious way to actually think that those are reasonable ideas. You need to have like this whole kind of Rube Goldberg thought palace going on in your head to think that that makes any sense at all. Because in fact, <laughs> it doesn't well, make I any think, sense.
0: I think the, throughout everything that we've been talking about reminds me it reminded me of the fact that like, I find that today a lot of discourse about science is driven by science fiction. And I suspect that in the you know 70s golden age of science fiction, those science fiction writers were reading science and basing their fiction on science. And now it's sort of like popular conceptions of science are based on the science fiction rather than the other way around. <laughs> it's a it's a strange thing that's going on, but yeah, like I think that those vi- like this Elon Musk worship and all yeah. these other things they have a lot to do with like Hollywood and like pop culture ideas of of what science and technology are.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and so they wanna so this idea is that biodiversity will be out there rather than something that humans are actually in a dynamic interaction uh, with with tending, um, which goes which is very much a not only is it a colonial conception, but it actually is colonial in the sense of denying the actual biophysical social reality of our planet where indigenous peoples are the primary custodians of biodiversity on a per capita and per land mass basis. Like the biodiversity hotspots are places currently inhabited by indigenous people. Exactly. Uh, so it makes sense to say, oh, what is your world like? And what? how can we support your social struggle to defend your world? That's like for me. That's the leftist position. Whereas uh, the leftist position is not, you know, turn uh, New York City, Chicago, and Bombay into Noah's arcs or yeah. uh, Mike Davis's arcs, uh, New Left Reviews arcs, and you know, uh, apres Marle deluge. Like it, it, it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it, and tell it, the indigenous it, people, thanks for all the biodiversity. Now we're gonna kick you out. <laughs> yeah, like, a com- conservation I- area. <laughs>
1: like come to our mm-hmm. concentration camps or our cities or, or what have you, uh, but, and thanks for the good work you've done. And we're gonna take it over from here, although we don't have the requisite knowledge, uh, but we plan on doing it anyway. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, but Stan, I insist that you uh, go back to this point about the, the biodiversity related to the perennial agriculture, because I wanna learn about this yeah, in the cereal agriculture. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. Our- Work from the beginning was um, was focused and in the um, central U.S. and and but we've you know, we've had an international vision as well. But um, but it was based on the observation of the the biome here, which is the the prairie or um, sometimes a savanna type. You know, uh, uh, ecosystems and those, while not as um, as um, um, impressive in you know, visually impressive as as rainforest, um, are have um, extremely high um, levels of biodiversity and um, and and a lot a very large percentage of of the action is out of sight, uh, underground. Um, and, and there's probably no way to um, capture that degree of biodiversity in a, a food uh, producing system. But the, the two uh, properties of the prairie ecosystem that um, are, are essential to maintaining um, soil health and, and biodiversity are that the, the plants um, uh are perennial and that there's a a diversity of plant species in there, because clearly a a monoculture is not going to support biodiversity. Um, So those are the two um, uh, principles on which um, um, perennial grains, which um, are, most of them are um, at least distant cousins of um, the uh, annual grasses and, and legumes um, and uh, other uh, species like sunflower that um, you know, that were domesticated um, thousands of years ago. Um, so they are. Um, so we know, you know a lot about them uh, already. Um, but um, as perennials and growing in um, polycultures, um, in, in the same way that the uh, kind of agroforestry systems that um, you uh, write uh, write about in the book um, is is going to um, support a lot more, uh, a much more rich ecosystem than. Um, the wheat fields that we've got out here now.
1: And is there an idea that those can be intercut with some kind of uh, untrammeled uh, savannas and prairies, or
2: has that been modeled at all? Well, yeah, that we've uh, uh, always left the, left that um, idea open. Um, and in, in fact, um uh, starting even in, in the late 90s our uh, colleagues in Australia had been um, working on this idea to um, in in areas where they had taken out the existing um, scrub kind of vegetation and, and planted wheat and was and they were having problems with um, um, salinity in, in groundwater um, they they were interplanting um, uh, various tree species with um, wheat and were um, s- saying that really the um, th- that the uh, the system would not reach its full potential until uh, perennial wheat was developed and so they were um, working on having. Perennial grains interspersed with these uh, uh, tree or, or scrub species, um, but it, it's it would certainly be. The, I I, re, I remember um, uh, in uh, Southwest China um, where they um, were um, growing um, these uh, their rubber plantations, which <laughs> yeah, that that wasn't. So good, but they, um, they they had an understory of uh, upland rice uh, growing in there, and um, we're talking about how not not rubber necessarily, but that um, if you had um, tree species in here, it's in 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 the tropics, so there are a lot of different ones, even on um, hilly ground, and it was quite hilly there. That if Um, You had perennial rice, which um, has actually been developed in its own thousands of hectares now in China, Um, but if you had perennial upland rice um, growing in in a system with um, trees or other woody species, that that it would be a much healthier uh, ecosystem than just planting uh, straight upland rice, which that land had been used for. Well, I was wondering, Max that you know a planet of fields um, is, as you uh, point out, is going to be a planet in which you have a much larger uh, uh, share of the population is going to be living outside of cities um, and, and also a, a, a planet in, in which. In, in the in the countries uh, like the U.S. that um, where agriculture has been almost totally mechanized, that there is going to be a, a need for people um, working uh, more um, themselves outdoors um, and uh, freed of uh, the uh, technologies that you um, have. Pointed out, or the, the so-called labor-saving technologies are a, um, means of, uh, of uh, controlling and, and dominating the, the workforce. But th- this aspect of it is, is I think that one one of the things that uh, scares uh, people about uh, this vision and. Uh, and causes the, the, the kind of overreaction with you know, fully automated luxury communism, etc., um, to um, um, protect people from having to actually do physical work. And you, you make a good case that um, much of what we do in our leisure time um, seems to indicate, you know, through you know, gardening and so forth, and indicate that we we actually have a need to do that kind of work. Um, so, how, do you have people um, uh, telling you this that you know, people have, for centuries, have been um, fleeing the countryside and going to cities because they, um, you know, because of uh, drudgery or whatever stereotypes there are about uh, farming. Life, um, do, do you have to um, you know, fend off that, those kind of um, uh, those kind of uh, uh, complaints? To some extent,
1: uh, there have been a few uh, malcontents, I would say, uh, who are not not particularly careful readers, who uh, or or you know type of folks who read with their eyes closed um, and, and their fingers in their ears. Um, so yeah, um, so <laughs> they're not reading at all. Uh, who, who have uh, raised this, this critique? I mean, you know, my position is, is to some extent it's, uh, it's agnostic and like what, uh, you know, so my question is what, what is the percentage of people who need to live in the land, or, or perhaps more to, to put a slightly different uh, quantitative spin on it, how much annual activity needs to be done in order to have a sustainable management of the landscape that's uh, manage it so to supply human needs? That's a question. Uh, the, the question the the answer that comes from this kind of, uh, the, the eco modern fan eco modernist fantasist crowd is, uh, asymptotically approaching zero, right? That's more or less their answer. This is obviously not the correct answer, uh, from, from a realistic perspective, nor is the correct answer something like 50%. That's a wrong answer. Uh, so what is the answer is one? I don't know what the answer is, right? Uh, Two, the answer is definitely more than are currently involved in the United States, in agriculture. Uh, That's another answer. Now, beyond that, I I, I have absolutely no idea, other than to point out that there are so many activities uh, that, you know, that I've also just thought about in the last three minutes beyond activities like gardening and uh, gardening and uh, both uh, both natural, both gardening for food and uh, gardening just for uh, recreation and aesthetic reasons, uh, but also activities like uh, that uh, indicate like a residual interest in uh, being in nature, like hiking, like uh, going to the zoo. Uh, this uh, suite of activities could kind of be reconfigured into uh, sustainable landscape management. I mean, children, before they're taught that work is crap and the correct thing is to do is to play PlayStation all day, I love sitting around and playing with dirt and building sandcastles and stuff. That's like hard work for kids, but they don't think of it that way because they haven't been socialized into it, right? Um, So I think there is a scope for it, but it requires... I mean, one, of course, it requires, uh, you know, a, a different conception of work. I mean, the, the deprecation of manual labor is part and parcel of uh, the kind of uh, capitalist uh, model, the, the capitalist uh, system, which is based on a separation between, uh, you know, uh, a refined separation between manual and mental labor, and that, of course, deprecates, Uh, manual labor. There's all these sorts of uh, social science fictions that go into it, for example, that people claim people are fleeing the countryside in essence because it is hard work. And suddenly people who are the most orthodox Marxists who think that, you know, Marx was delivering a sort of truth based on these uh, stone tablets from, uh, you know, uh, Mount Communists, They forget that what Mark said is that people people are involved in social relations, whereas if you think of agriculture as merely hard work, you're talking basically about a biophysical relationship. And so people leave the countryside because of poverty (laughs) and usually because they don't have land. Not well, because... Yeah, I mean, there,
0: there's a deliberate policy, at least since the 50s, by the U.S. to depopulate the countrysides of the third world, right? I mean, that's where all mm-hmm. their aid efforts and everything has gone. So it's not yeah. coincidental that the massive yeah. rural to urban migrations have happened in that period.
1: For sure. And who, you know, which sector of the U.S. Uh, kind of radical movements have been most savagely persecuted by the US state are actually like radical black nationalist movements with a relationship to the land. So these movements, for that matter, are interested in uh, some form of relationship with uh, agrarian system. Then they're murdered and ripped apart and co by the US state. And then you have uh, the kind of Groucho Marxist left saying, well, look, <laughs> People don't want to do physical labor. don't
0: want to be there anyway. People don't want
1: want to be there. That's why we have to send in COINTELPRO to disrupt their political activities. And you're just like, okay, I think you're kind of engaged in um, some sort of uh, religious exercise that doesn't exactly necessarily have anything to do with um, changing the world. Certainly doesn't have to do with even looking at the world. And trying to understand it is so this is all to say you know I have no idea what the answer is to um, uh, how many people are, are needed to manage the human relationship with nature in a in a sustainable way uh, that can preserve biodiversity and so forth you know I think it's a, I think it's a very open open question and it's okay to admit that we don't have all the answers and it's also okay to say uh, to, it's also okay to put forth the proposition that part of our work as our own work in terms of understanding the world and our place in it uh, and collaboratively uh, working together to better understand with other people all of our collective place in the world is understanding and, and changing our minds about certain ideas that, we ideas that we received from capitalist culture, such as that we can get away without doing any hard work at all. Maybe we, maybe some of us, uh, more of us than, we, uh, than uh, zero, need to get up off our asses and do a little bit of work to preserve nature. And that needs to be just explained uh, in a rational, scientific, humane way. Okay, X amount of work would have to be done to make sure... That the planet is more or less perpetually safe uh, uh, and is a secure environment with a great biodiversity profile, providing food, preserving the environment, saving all the animals in the Amazon and everything. And it would be X amount of work. And and that's how things have to work. I think most human beings will get on board with it. I don't know. You know, it remains to be seen. I don't have a a blueprint for it. But that's just my feeling.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, you guys, uh, the the Stan, you Wes has that eyes on the land kind of idea, right? Like more people, more people out there. Yeah. The um. So, you know, towards the end of the book, um, Max, you again like there's so many parallels between you know, the sensible things you suggest and the sensible things that Stan suggests. Um, but, you know, you've got, you, you both talk about demilitarization. So I'll, I'll hand the floor over to Stan first about that one. But, you know, I just wanted to say that the way you talk about indigenous sovereignty, decolonization and national sovereignty and nationalism is such a huge breath of fresh air for an environmentalist who... Um, you know, if you're into environmental uh, literature, it's always so um, not just Eurocentric, but like America-centric as if the rest of the world doesn't exist and as if, you know, there's no problem that more imperialism can't fix, right? So if there's something going on in the third world, well, maybe we need to take that, you know, maybe Britain needs to take over Guyana's rainforest or whatever, the clean development mechanism you know, enables northern countries to take over southern tropical ones or whatever. But your your emphasis on national sovereignty, I think, is so important, and also decolonization. But um, let's, let's, you know, maybe we can move towards wrapping up. But I wanted to give you both the floor to talk about, again, something environmentalists almost never talk about, which is demilitarization. And, and Stan, you talked, it was one of the first things you uh, talked about at the end of your green beyond Green New Deal and beyond, and then uh, we'll turn it over to Max. So,
2: okay, demilitarization. I thought you were saying dematerialization. But- <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> We've already covered that. I think. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, what we're going to do if we um, really do what is necessary to um, eliminate uh, the use of fossil fuels within um, a short time period and um, and do all the other things, not not only with regard to climate, but um, the other planetary boundaries that um, we've already transgressed to pull back within those. There's um, There's no alternative to... Uh, more um, planning of uh, production and directing of uh, material resources and energy toward you know, the meeting of you know, human needs and away from um, uses that are, are either um, harmful or un- unnecessary or superfluous. Um, and the uh, and there's nothing that qualifies as being uh, both harmful and unnecessary um, as, as much as the military um, does. And so it, that's clearly the, the, the first place to um, start cutting is there. Um, not only in this case, and yeah, you know, I was talking mainly about Domestic uh, policy in in the book, but also uh, it's probably the single uh, best thing we could do to um, reduce the harm that we're doing uh, all over the world is um, to um, uh, to do that to um, um, uh, well yeah defund the police. This would be de-resource the military. I guess, but but instead, what, what are they talking about? The, the Navy is aiming to have um, 100% biofuel um, uh, powered um, uh, jet bombers and aircraft, or and and fighter jets and and um, so forth. So we we're it's another uh, bit of magical thinking that we have.
0: Max, do you want to go from demilitarization to national sovereignty to decolonization?
1: Yeah, I mean, demilitarization,
0: I, I have
1: uh, nothing to add except just to also mention the U.S. US footprint on other nations, for example, uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, the, all of the whole militarized uh, yeah. Southeast Asia. Uh, the, you know, these are actually highly polluting and uh, often because they essentially practically sovereign often based on the the agreements between the u.s and you know whatever semi-colony they've cited their bases on uh they, they don't ever have to deal with uh, environmental remediation from the waste right and it's also uh you know but, someone who does a, a lot of work on the arab region i mean the the environmental damage from the munitions themselves right white, white phosphorus and depleted uranium and so forth i mean these are Catastrophic, right?
0: But if Elizabeth Warren had won, she would have greened the US military, though, so.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's why. <laughs> this is why we believe in the electoral route to, to social change. Um, yeah, no, and you know, the, the the pictures that have come out, for example, from uh, Fallujah, it's just entirely beyond belief, or, you know, Agent Orange, for that matter, in Vietnam. So this, this should be added. You know, this question of national sovereignty, um, you know, there, there's a sophisticated and a more and a more simple and straightforward argument. I think both are important uh, because essentially there is a widespread. Uh, it's not a support for uh, colonialism in the U.S. left. It's actually just a shrugging at colonialism on the U.S. left. The the the, the it's starting to shift rapidly now the radicalization of a new generation of youth. But the overwhelming, it seems to me, that at least a vocal minority, if not a majority of uh, people who identify as the left, especially within the academy, my age, which is uh, 37 hefty years and older, uh, basically don't care about U.S. Uh, operations against other countries, whether those are black ops, whether those are direct invasions, whether those are proxy wars, whether those are sanctions. Uh, You know, what's going on in Yemen, Venezuela, uh, Syria, um, uh, the sanctions against Iran. This is basically either no one, they just don't care. You know, and they certainly won't mention it to their twenty-two thousand uh, Twitter followers who they're who they're blathering to about Marxology,
0: or they support it uh,
1: and they sign yeah, statements.
0: It's a, they're fighting dictators and you know other bad imperial powers or whatever.
1: Yeah. So yeah. people uh, signed statements calling for uh, like Sinzi uh, Arusa, who's kind of uh, supposedly some kind of. Um, Marxist feminists, signed a letter calling for sanctioning the architects of the oppression in Iran. The letter was subsequently changed, but that doesn't really impress me. I mean, uh, they saw the letter, they signed it, then under pressure the content of the letter was changed um, to uh, remove the call for outright sanctions. I mean, there's a serious problem of support for uh, neo- colonialism on the U.S. left, right? So this is the basic position, is that National sovereignty includes the right to be free of sanctions, the right to not have proxy armies invading your country, uh, and and the right to not be directly invaded and occupied. uh, And for example, uh, or to have Qatar do it with the US leading from behind, as was the case in uh, Libya which uh, Gilbert Ashkar famously uh, warned us not to oppose, right? And- Yeah, he, uh, I,
0: I'll never forget that he said that if we support the bombing of Libya, then we'll have a powerful argument uh, for a no-fly zone over, um, over Gaza the next time Israel bombs Gaza. Right, so was, right, it and it's kind for, of, It was ultimately for Palestine that he advocated uh, the bombing of
1: Libya. Y- yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of this culture of uh, within which Either people just don't mention those things, or if you do mention those things and also identify who is supporting uh, the colonial actions, you're a sectarian.
0: Well, yeah, and it's it's also totally divorced from the environmental discussion, right? Like envi- environment is seen as like some kind of domestic issue. And then if you get into like talk about, you know, whatever these, these U- U.S. interventions, well, that's like. Uh, You know, you're like a geopolitics person or like that's like, yeah, but these are
1: these are intimate. These are intimately related. I mean, it's not a coincidence that Cuba, Venezuela and Bolivia have been the main actors on the international stage, putting forth a radical call for dealing with the environmental crisis in a way which actually allows for southern national popular development and that these countries are under siege, sanction. Uh, coup d'état by the United States. So when we t- the, the, so first, I mean, the national question and the environmental question; these are two sides of the same coin, right? They cannot be that, and the coin cannot be split in half um, without destroying the coin. You have to keep both of these in mind because dealing with the environmental question is mediated through dealing uh, with the national question. Countries need national popular control over just their borders, to be able to deal adequately with all these other aspects of the environmental question, like demanding climate debt. How are Palestinians supposed to uh, have a sustainable management of their ecology when they're being uh, occupied? I mean, thankfully, a lot of people on the US left now recognize that Palestinians are human beings and deserve some form of control over their lands and lives. Unfortunately, this uh, this uh, blessed recognition has not really been recognized to the people of Iran, Yemen, Libya, Syria, right? So, uh, let alone uh, Zimbabwe, right, where actually uh, these people were demonized as um, uh, <laughs> a- a- as uh, as Mugabeists for taking their land back from white settlers, well, right? Trump's and of course, the same people demon the same the same kind of uh, the same kind of pantheon of geniuses uh, who were responsible <laughs> for signing these letters, calling for uh, sanctioning Iran. or It's the same cluster, are uh, uh, the same people, uh, or at least the same uh, publications that uh, also call for, um, you know, demonize the, the Black Zimbabweans for taking their land back from the white settlers. This is really a cluster of people who are Interested in destroying anything that makes people powerful uh, and allows them to determine their own fate in the third world, which is the only way they're going to be if you can't deal with your own fate then you can't deal with the environmental question. Like, there's no way to separate out the two, right? I mean, there's a much more complicated question dealing with um, environmentally uneven exchange and using uh, state apparatuses to reduce the impact of environmentally uneven exchange through industrialization, uh, the calls for climate debt repayments, and so forth, which that's actually not terribly complicated uh, to demand climate debt repayments. But you need a state in the way our world is set up that operates through the nation-state system. Uh, that's not necessarily how I think one builds socialism per se, but you need a nation-state to advocate in the UN uh, and, and at Copenhagen or, or what have you for uh, climate debt repayments. There's not another mechanism to do so. So uh, yeah. what do they want? Anyone who doesn't want to deal with any of those things is a person who doesn't actually want to deal with the just global transition at all and that's my position in fact is that they don't want a global just transition they're just uh looking away while much of the world burns
0: well you certainly are not doing that max Isle, uh people's green new deal and stan um you know i was one i was meaning to ask you just before uh we log off uh, is there a path to a liv- livable future you know at all before us uh,
2: well, maybe I should. Uh, this um, you're referring to the title of the book I've got coming out. Uh, probably should have put a question mark at, at the, uh, <laughs> the end of that. But, uh, but Max, as you probably know, um, Justin likes asking these kind of questions, and I'm surprised through this whole thing that he asked hasn't asked both of us, the, the question that he always asks, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, they're not gonna let you do that, don't you? <laughs> anyway, so, uh, But that's just his way of getting us to think of uh, how to make them let us do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, so Stan's got um, The Path to a Livable Future coming out um, this year. What, do you know when it's coming out, Stan?
2: Uh, in the fall sometime.
0: And a People's Green New Deal is out, right, Max? Where can we get it? Tell us where we can get it.
1: Um, bookshop.com, right? Yes. Is that what it is? Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, a, They're great. <laughs> yeah. Prefer
0: Bookshop. Or bookshop.org. And Sorry. If not
1: Bookshop.com, if you, Bookshop.org. If you don't oh, have yeah. an account at Bookshop.org, please order direct from the publisher Pluto Press.
0: All right. All right. Keep the money
1: in the in the hands of the publisher and out of the hands of Amazon.
0: Of Jeff Bezos, the soon-to-be quadrillionaire, or whatever.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys, very much.
1: Thank you.
2: Right. Thank you, Justin.